While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. This passage ends with the words, All this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. We believe that the scriptures are the very inspired word of God. And that means that every, every moment of the life of Jesus was lived to fulfill every word spoken to us by God the Father through his word. To fulfill is to bring something to completion or to reality. It's to carry out a task or to complete a duty or to embody a role, something that's required, pledged, expected to satisfy or meet a condition. But to be fulfilled is something different. To be fulfilled is to gain happiness or satisfaction through abilities or character. Fulfilling a duty might be a rote obligation. Being fulfilled is finding great joy in your work. And so we find both fulfilling and being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the representation of God's being, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus was the fulfillment in flesh of the God who has always been. But then Hebrews 12 says that it was for the joy set before him, that Jesus' ability and his character allowed him to be a a perfect sacrifice. That is why he endured the cross and despised the shame. The mission of Jesus was to glorify God in the redemption of all mankind, restoring us to the right relationship that existed originally in the Garden of Eden. This month, my family celebrates the 16th anniversary of our arrival to Memphis. We didn't know that we were choosing the 901 when we moved here. That wasn't the catchphrase of the day. I moved here from Tallahassee, Florida. I had moved there to kind of seal the deal with Sarah. And then uh, once we got engaged, I started looking for for ministry positions, um, found this opportunity, 
And my first role uh, was in junior high ministry here. And about a year after we had moved in, uh, moved to Memphis, we bought a house, moved in and decorated and all those things. And I remember at some point we had an event for students at our house and one particularly astute and curious student said, have you ever noticed that all of the decor in your home is in sets of three? And I said, well, I believe in the Trinity. No, that's not what I said. I, uh, I looked at him and I said, no, I, I've actually never thought of that before. We started looking around. Sure enough, we had three pictures hanging on the wall together. And then you look in our kitchen and there's three bowls side by side. And then you look at our dining room table and there's three candles in the centerpiece. And I thought, interesting. This is, you know, I've, I live in my house every day. And I've never noticed that this, everything's in sets of three. Sometimes we just move through life looking at things that are in plain sight. We don't really notice that certain things are happening or certain things that are going on. And the scriptures are the same way. We come to Good Friday, we've read the story, we know what happens, and yet every time it seems like the Lord reveals new things to us. So for me this year, my, my in plain sight moment is where the text says, Jesus came, or Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And as I looked at this verse, I thought to myself, who exactly is in charge of this mission? Like, who, who is planning the arrest of Jesus? And, and, and who was part of the task force to bring this thing to happen? How do you determine the best way to apprehend the king of the universe. Like, what's your strategy there? Like, we've all watched movies. We've all watched movies where there's some kind of rescue mission going on, or there's some special forces unit that is deployed to make something happen. And there's all kinds of strategic planning that goes into that process. And, and the plan to arrest Jesus is basically a midnight ambush, right? And if you're the ringleader of this arrest, how do you decide who goes? How many people do we need to pull this off? And maybe that's just hindsight for us as believers. We've read the full story and we understand that. But surely some of these folks, I mean, it's the chief priests and the elders, and these are the ones that are planning this thing out. Surely some of them were around for some of the things that Jesus did. They were witnesses of his miracles. They had to know how powerful he was that even though they so desperately wanted to arrest him, they had heard him question people in such a way that they thought, he knows what people are thinking. He had healed on the Sabbath in front of the Pharisees and surely stories of other miracles that had taken place in other regions had traveled by word of mouth back to these folks. How do you come against a guy so powerful that he drove demons out of people into a herd of pigs that rushed off a cliff? How do you arrest this guy? But our passage says all of this takes place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus was fulfilled by fulfilling the scriptures. And even though it's a, it's a midnight ambush, it's really not a stealth mission, is it? There's this huge crowd with swords and clubs. Jesus is in a, in a garden by himself with a couple drowsy disciples, right? 
Surely he hears the crowd approaching. There's no element of surprise involved, both for those approaching Jesus and and his response as well. Because there were times in Jesus' life where the crowd came and they were hostile. Luke chapter 4, verse 28 to 30 says this, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I'd love to know how that actually happened, right? The buildup is huge, and then it's almost like Jesus is, slips through. Jesus knew that wasn't the time. He had to wait because he wanted to fulfill the scriptures. And think about who are these people that are arresting him? They're the people described in the hymn In Christ Alone where we sing in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Jesus came to save the ones coming at him with swords and clubs. Their approach was violent and hostile. Even the disciples' response is hostile, and yet Jesus remains so gentle. How does he do that? How does Jesus remain so gentle? The prophets, hundreds of years before, described Jesus as a sheep being led to slaughter. Jesus was fulfilled in fulfilling the scriptures. How else could it be his joy to sacrifice himself for our sins? So gentle is the response of Jesus, both to the mob and then to Judas, his betrayer, that he says, friend, friend, do what you came to do. And this word isn't an insult. The the word in the Greek here is a companion or a cousin, or a clansman. Jesus recognizes that, G- that Judas is still one of his own. In John 1, Jesus is described as being full of grace and truth. I think he really believes that Judas is still his friend. He still wants him to be his friend. Judas is the betrayer, but Jesus calls him friend. There is no one even in the moment of betrayal that is beyond the grace of God. And even when the disciples get hostile with the crowd, I mean, there's not many disciples in comparison to this great crowd. They're overmatched. And how does Jesus respond? Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and there will be 12 legions of angels? I mean, is this not the biggest, like, my dad can beat up your dad moment, right? (laughs) You came to me with swords and clubs. Guess who my backup is? Jesus knows he's able to unleash his power at any moment. Why doesn't he do it? He's fulfilled in fulfilling the scriptures. The way of Jesus was never retaliatory. The way of Jesus is always Reconciliatory, that's a big word, reconciliatory. Jesus' way is always to reconcile things. Even his judgment is to reconcile things. In the book, The God Who Loves You, 
Peter Kraft writes this, we could never have known how unthinkably large and wide and deep God's love is but for the cross. Jesus knows that this is the way of reconciliation. Only through the cross could it be that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, the disciples fled in this moment. This is when it all breaks down. And we're both the disciples and Judas. We're both the betrayers and the fleers. Jesus' reconciliation is for the betrayers and the fleers. It's for the ones who left the scene at the wrong moment and the ones who brought the scene to begin with. Jesus' way of reconciliation is to allow this crowd to pursue him. Because of Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus was satisfied by the anguish of his soul. In fulfilling the scriptures, Jesus found his fulfillment. Another way of saying that he was fulfilled to fulfill the scriptures is when Jesus says about himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And there are examples of how Jesus both experiences what we experience and then fulfills, gives us a promise of all that is to come and how he is satisfactory in his, satis- in his sacrifice for us. That in his humanity, he experienced all the things that we did and then he was fully God in the way that he offered us himself and his complete life. Lewis Sperry Chafer wrote a book called Major Bible Themes where he gives example after example of how Jesus did this. I'm going to paraphrase his quote here, but it says that Jesus was weary in John chapter 4 at the well, but then he called the weary to himself, saying that his yoke was easy and his burden was light in Matthew 11. Jesus was hungry when he was tempted in the desert in Matthew 4, but he declares himself the bread of life. In John chapter 6, he was thirsty in John 19 on the cross. But John 7 says that anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus experiences the agony of the cross in Luke chapter 22, but he relieved and healed agony and pain throughout his ministry through both healing and forgiveness of sin. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, but on more than one occasion called the dead back to life. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the very God in that moment that he was crying to through Christ was reconciling the whole world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19. All the scriptures are fulfilled through Jesus. And what does he do when he comes? What is the, the result of this sacrifice? 
That's what we're about to celebrate. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In fulfilling the scriptures, one author puts it this way, it was Yahweh himself who underwrote the covenant. He himself was the pledge and the guarantor. Jesus is its constant theme, at first hidden and obscure, but then with increasing clarity disclosed as the new covenant is introduced. All God's promises are realized in Christ and are utterly trustworthy. He is the one mediator of the new covenant who has restored fellowship between God and humanity. His is the faith and obedience accepted by God, ours having value because of his. End quote. What we're celebrating tonight, Jesus was thrilled to do, even as he was fully human and understood how painful it would be. This new covenant is what we experience through Christ when we take communion together. And so on this night, when we remember his death, we also want to celebrate all who he is and all that he has been to us until he returns. And so if you have... the bread and the cup in front of you. You know, I can't wait until we can do this differently. <laughs> I feel like we are so close. Um, I know we probably won't do it this way, but I just want really big loaves of bread where we just take really big bites, you know. <laughs> Makes me wonder if we do this in heaven and how much cooler it will be. I don't know if you can say cooler from the pulpit. That's probably my youth ministry days coming out. But Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, before the moments that we just looked at together, he's with these guys that he spent three years investing in. And somehow he knows they're all about to run. They're all about to take off. It's all about to go down. And Jesus loves them to the very end. And they eat dinner together. And he takes bread and he, he breaks it and he says, this is my body to be broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. And then after the meal, he took a cup 
And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Take it and drink in remembrance of me. And we have just proclaimed the Lord's death until he comes. And I'm excited to celebrate that with you. And we're going to sing.